I wanted to write about Harold Hadrada ever since I first heard his, heard his story as a kid. Uh, he fought from Scandinavia to Russia, uh, Constantinople, the Holy Lands, Sicily. He didn't start from quite nothing, but carved himself a kingdom by basically the strength of his sword arm. I mean, he's just a Viking's Viking. An excerpt from today's guest, who's written a true account of a king who many believe was the greatest warrior to ever live. Author and military historian Don Hallway is here, and I'll speak with him after this break. This is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. I'm Robert Charles. Today's guest is an author, illustrator, and historian. He's published articles in History Magazine, Military Heritage, Military History, Wild West, and more. He's written his first book, The Last Viking, The True Story of King Harold Hadrada, and author Don Hallway joins us now. Don, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Before we get started, I want to reference a review that, was, that struck me. Don Hallway not only knows the history, he also knows how to tell a great story. The Last Viking is a masterful and pulse-pounding narrative that transports the reader into the middle of the action. Military Heritage Magazine. Congratulations on that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That was exactly, the, uh, exactly what I was trying to do when I wrote it. That's great. It's great to see it recognized. You've, you've written a lot of articles for, uh, for military history magazines, and this is your first book. It's a major subject. What inspired you to take on, on this subject? Well, uh, I, I sort of ended up in military history by default. I mean, I, I also write about aviation and history topics in general, everything from like Mata Hari to the Great Chicago Fire and uh, the gunpowder plot of 1605, and even like the history of the guitar. So I'm a I'm a generalized history buff, but uh, military history seems to be what most people are interested in. I mean, uh, that that's military history is the driver of a lot of history. They always say the history is written by the winners. So naturally, you sort of uh, end up writing about military history. But uh, I wanted to write about Harold Hadrada ever since I first heard his, heard his story as a kid. I mean, the guy just had such an amazing life for somebody, particularly in that age. I mean, he was well-traveled, traveled all over the medieval world. Uh, he fought from Scandinavia to Russia, uh, Constantinople, the Holy Lands, Sicily, England. I mean, he covered basically all the territory in medieval England. Yeah. He served kings and emperors, uh, romanced empresses, married a princess, and uh, basically... He didn't start from quite nothing, but carved himself a kingdom by basically the strength of his sword arm. I mean, he's just a Viking's Viking. And really, I wanted to do a magazine article about him for years, and his story is just too big to put down in a magazine article and really do it justice. So uh, a little while back, my agent called me up and said, you know, Vikings are really hot right now with this uh, TV show and everything that's on. What Do you, do you know anything about Vikings? And I said let me tell you a story and uh <laughs> I, I sold it to him and he took it out and sold it to osprey which was pretty osprey publishing that was pretty flattering they're a well-known history uh, mm -hmm. military history publisher and uh, i was really flattered that they picked me up because uh I've, I've got a stack as a history buff i've got a stack of osprey books on my bookshelf and for any military topic 
they're they're really like the first stop. I mean, that will give you an overview of almost any military history aspect for basically all of time. I mean, give you an overview, and from there you can go into the the deeper sources. I agree. They're an excellent publisher. I interviewed uh, Mike Cole, and he wrote about the Spartans, a book called mm -hmm. The Bronze Lie. Mm -hmm. I haven't read that one yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I am as well. I'm actually with Osprey myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a nice little club, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I say, it's the go-to club for history buffs, and Absolutely. I'm 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 very proud to be a part of it. Yeah, they're great people. Now, the king you you mentioned he had a life that was larger than life, and, right? Um, I was interested in in how he began. Was it uh, from hum humble beginnings, or how did he start out? Well, he was uh, born to minor royalty. Uh, his his father, uh, Sigurd Sal, was a minor king in the south of Norway and was actually more of a farmer than he was a king. I think he was closer to a rich landowner in those feudal times, but he did have the title of a king. Uh, and he was actually a, a, a stepfather to the king of Norway, King Olaf II, who was our Harald Hadrada's half-brother. They both had the same mother. Uh, so Harold did start with royal blood, but uh, that that didn't help him at all when Olaf was trying to unite all of Norway. Uh, actually, for the second time, he was kicked out once, but he came back and tried to do it again. And they fought. Uh, he fought the opposition at the Battle of Stiklestad in northern Norway in the, in the year 1030. Uh, the battle is famous because it was fought partially under a total eclipse of the sun. So it was like a night fight in the middle of the day. It got so dark that you could hardly see what was going on. The sun was 98% obscured. Wow. And uh, so you can imagine for people in that time what an omen that would have been. I mean, the, the Viking pagans would have looked up and seen this black ring or black hole in the sun and that would have appeared to them like Odin, the one-eyed father god, looking down on them. And of course, this is almost exactly a thousand years after Christ was crucified, and there was darkness on that day. So all the Christians would have been thinking something momentous is going to happen here as well. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, Olaf, Harold's brother, was killed on the battlefield, and uh, Harold was badly wounded, and uh, he had he escaped and had to start over from basically nothing. He went into exile. He was an outlaw and uh, had to get out of the country. So it was sort of um, by situation that he ended mm -hmm. up becoming a king. It sounds like an amazing battle. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it's. Uh, I didn't know that much about it going into it, and. Uh, there's a discrepancy because the Norwegians celebrate the anniversary at the end of July, but scientists, you know, you can you can turn back the astronomical clock to find out exactly when an, uh, an eclipse happens right. over that time, and it actually happened on August 31st. And the discrepancy, as I point out in the book, uh, was because of uh, uh, the ancient an ancient text counted a certain number of hundred days after uh, Christmas. But if you count it in Norwegian long hundreds, with the, the old Norwegians used to count 120 as 100. It was called a long hundred. And if you count it by long hundreds, the date that the guy gave worked out to August 31st. So the Norwegians are actually celebrating kind of an arbitrary date. But if you don't tell them, I won't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't mention a thing. <laughs> now, 
The king had a reputation for being a, a severe or hard ruler, and his right. the name actually means hard ruler, doesn't it? Right. By some translations, you can depending on how you want to translate it, it's hard counsel or tyrant or but I mean they all mean basically the same thing. Hard ruler is the most popular translation. Was the reputation well deserved? Was he a hard ruler? I think I think by the end of his life uh, it was well deserved. I mean, as I say, when he escaped from uh, uh, Stiklestad, he had been raised as a minor prince. I mean, so he was, you know, he had that inclination all to to begin with. But Viking society, you have to remember, was uh, it was more democratic than a lot of uh, medieval um, societies were. Most most uh, Norse kings were not absolute rulers. Uh, the Vikings had, particularly in like Iceland, they had the All Thing, which I think is still the oldest surviving democratic uh, government in the West, maybe in the world. Mm. And that's that was kind of the, the default Viking government. They had kings, but their kings weren't uh, necessarily absolute rulers. Now, Harold, having gotten away from Stiklestad and into exile at age 15, he went to Russia uh, because Olaf had some kinsmen over there. Prince Yaroslav of Kiev was uh, Olaf's brother-in-law. So uh, Harold went there to find shelter and uh, joined the joined the mercenaries and actually became one of Yaroslav's bodyguards. Now, Yaroslav, the Russians at that point, they were the descendants of Swedish Vikings, but they had sort of formed their own way of doing things. And Yaroslav was an absolute monarch. I mean, when you read the accounts of how he was treated uh, he, whenever he got off the, his throne, they brought his horse to the throne and he stepped from the throne onto the horse, did whatever he had to do, and then would ride the horse back up to the throne and dismount onto the throne. I mean, he was, you know, he was a king's king. And uh, so Harold learned from that example. And as he matured in the in Yaroslav's court, uh, actually became the head of Yaroslav's bodyguard he was still uh, in his late teens i want to say at this point mm -hmm. and he began to aspire after yaroslav's daughter uh, elizaveta but at this point harold didn't have had no land no money didn't really have uh, anything going for him so yaroslav said you're gonna have to you know make yourself a more worthy match so harold went down to constantinople and signed up with the varangian guard which was an all viking unit down in uh, Constantinople that served uh, as both an elite fighting force, but also as the bodyguards to the imperial family. And the Byzantine emperors were also, uh, you know, the next, they were the representative of, of God on earth. There was a Senate, but it was really there for uh, rubber stamp purposes. So Harold was, Harold learned how to rule by observing all these absolute rulers and when he went back, ultimately, when he went back to Norway, that was the way he wanted to rule. He was not going to accept uh, anybody else's opinion on how to get things done. His goal was really to reunite uh, the old North Sea Empire of King Canute the Great. Uh, King Canute is famous as the one who sat by the tide and ordered the tide to go back. And, of course, the tide came back in. Uh, he was he had uh, a North Sea Empire consisting of England and Norway and Denmark. But after his death, it had kind of fallen apart. And uh, it was Harold's goal really to try and reunite that. Re that was kind of the apex of the Viking Age, and he wanted to recreate it. Uh, when he got there, the, the three countries, England and Norway and Denmark, were already separate. He uh, 
basically bought his way onto the throne of Norway and then fought a 15 year war with Denmark to try and get them back in his empire. And that really uh, ended up not working out for him. And actually the taxes and everything that he had to inflict on his own people more or less turned them against him. He had to, well, he didn't have to, he did it because he wanted to, he murdered the opposition leader. I mean, himself by hand killed the other guy and um, his populace began to rise up and he and, and in the end had to conduct like a year and a half campaign of reprisal on his own people, burning their houses and uh, just being a tyrant. And that's where he really earned the, the title hard ruler. I don't think anybody called him that until certainly not to his face. And they didn't call him that until uh, long after he was dead. He had he had other names that people called him at the time. His original Viking name was Harold Fairhair. And uh, that gets him confused with a, a supposed earlier Fairhair, Harold Fairhair. But they think that the historians think that uh, the earlier one was probably mythological and the two of them got confused in the old chronicles. Thanks for listening to the program. I hope you'll support our guests by clicking on the book purchase link in this episode's description. Each purchase helps support local bookstores, and that's always a good thing. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, my guest will be number one New York Times best-selling author, Tom Clavin, speaking on his new book, Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival. Uh, you know, that was one of the most vivid memories that Joe had of his Buchenwald experience when they were early when they were at the camp, almost immediately after arrival. A German guard who was probably suspecting or observing them looking around the camp, is there any way we can escape, any way we can get out of here? And with kind of with a smirk, you know, he pointed to the smoke coming out of the crematorium chimney. He said, that's the only way you leave here, as smoke. That's next time. You know, you say Harold Fairhair. Are there any descriptions of him? So, because I'm trying to picture the king... Any physical descriptions of the man? Yes. Uh, he was described as uh, being very tall, for one thing. He was described as five L's in height. An L was a uh, was a Viking measurement, which was roughly a foot and a half. It was uh, supposed to be the length of a, of a man's forearm, but Vikings were shorter in those days. So five L's, it's commonly assumed that he was over six feet. He probably wasn't that tall. But Vikings in general, to judge by their skeletons, were not not large by modern standards. We're all taller now than we were then. We're better fed and everything. Most Vikings, they were averaging under six feet tall. So, I mean, if he was six and a half feet, that would have made him seem like a giant. And he did have blonde hair. He was said to have uh, long mustaches. Uh, not uh, not so much of a beard as described, but his mustaches were pretty famous, and he was said to have large hands, although they were well formed, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he had all his fingers. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> now he died in 1066, and you say that signaled the end of the Norsemen. Why? Why was that? Well, uh, as I say, the, the Viking Age by 1066 was already kind of drawing to a close. Uh, the Vikings were not so much raiding England and France and Russia the way they had been for a couple of centuries. Uh, as I say, uh, Harold fought against Denmark for 15 years. So that's his, his main goal was just going down across the Baltic and raiding Denmark and then going home every year. So they had really... Uh, fallen off from their early dreaded days as Viking raiders. Um, so he, when he 
failed against Denmark, he decided to uh, set his sights on England and try to conquer that part of Canute's old empire. But England was a lot larger and better defended than Denmark. Uh, the English king's troops called house carls, uh, like household troops, each one of them was said to be worth two Vikings. And uh, Harold was really kind of doubtful about going to England and invading at all until the English king's, uh, who was also named Harold, the English king's brother, Tostig, had been banished and he came over uh, to try and whip up some enthusiasm and support to go back and try to take over his old earldom in Northumbria in the north of England. And he more or less talked Harold into uh, invading England because the this is 1066, this is a critical year in English history. Uh, King Harold of England is on the throne for less than a year at this point and Duke William of Normandy across the channel thinks that the crown should be his because he said that they had a prior agreement that he should have had the crown and he's getting ready to invade the english army spends the whole summer down in the south anticipating this invasion and that's why tostig was able to talk harold into invading the north because the only armies that were up there were just the house troops of the local northern earls in mercia and northumbria so that's why harold decided to go ahead on the invasion and uh, he died in battle, correct? He did. He did. They, uh, the Viking invasion of 1066 was very successful to start off with. They uh, came down the Channel Coast uh, raiding every village that they could find and then sailed up the Humber Estuary, which is, uh, if you look at a map of England, it's the big, uh, big cut that goes into the northeastern side of England. Mm -hmm. And then they sailed up the, uh, the Ouse River, which was uh, kind of a curious part in the story. I didn't know this before I looked into it. The Ouse River flows down, of course, south into the Humber estuary. But when the tide comes into the Humber, the Humber acts as a funnel and the tide will basically turn the river back around and make it flow upstream again. So the Vikings were able to, to sail into the Humber, catch the tide and ride the wave, basically, or ride the current or ride the current the whole way up towards almost to the to York in the in the far north. Wow. So they got off their boats short of short of York and marched on this town and finally came across the uh, the little armies of the northern earls, the Earl of Mercia and the Earl of Northumbria at Fulford, which was kind of a choke point along the river. You had the river on one side and there was a swamp on the other side and the earls uh, staged the Anglo-Saxon army across this little choke point so that the Vikings could not go to either side of them. They had to go through them. And at this battle of uh, Fulford, uh, the Vikings won because they uh, basically tricked the Anglo-Saxons into abandoning their shield wall and then got in between them and cut them all up, drove most of them into the swamp or the river and drove the rest of them back to uh, back into York, which surrendered. To guarantee English loyalty, Harold demanded hostages to be gathered and uh, delivered at Stamford Bridge on the 25th of October, 1066. And that was the final battle. Uh, when Harold went there, he left a third of his men with the ships where their ships were beached along the river and marched two thirds of them. It was a hot summer day. They left all their armor back on the ships. When they arrived at Stamford Bridge, they thought they were going to meet a peace delegation from York. And instead, they met the entire English army, which Harold, the English king, had force marched the entire way up from the south of England to the very north where York is. 
in uh, less than a week, I think basically four or five days. This was a huge accomplishment. It, it can't be understated. And it was a terrible shock to the Vikings because they were suddenly outnumbered and uh, caught without their armor. Uh, the only the only chance that they had was they were on one side of a bridge over the river Derwent. So they left a few men to defend the bridge while they gathered there, while they set themselves up on one side and the English were on the other side. Uh, there's a famous scene right before the battle where Harold sends Tostig because Harold, the Norwegian Harold, probably didn't speak English. He had never been there. Uh, so he sent Earl Tostig to talk to his brother, the English King Harold. And Tostig said of Harold, well, you know, here we are. We're going to fight this out. Uh, what do you have to say? And the English King Harold said, well, I'll, I'll give you, my brother, half the kingdom if you change sides right now and fight with me against Harold, uh, the Norwegian Harold. Mm -hmm. And Tostig said, well, I'm already in. I'm not going to do that. Uh, if, if, if that's the deal, what will you give the Norwegian King Harold? And the English King Harold said, I'll give him seven feet of uh, English ground or however much more he is than taller than other people. And <laughs> that's a famous statement in English history. And uh, Tostig said, that's not going to work. <laughs> so they went back across the bridge. And there's another famous scene where it was said that one Norwegian held the bridge against the entire English army because it was just a footbridge. It wasn't a big wide span. And this one uh, Norwegian warrior with a two-handed axe held off the bridge, held off the English from crossing the bridge and was said to have killed 40 of them before he was struck down by an Englishman who went under the bridge and stabbed him up through the planks with a spear. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> And then the English did manage to cross. They surrounded the uh, the Norwegians on the on the far side, uh, basically encircled them, and uh, there was basically no escape. the The Vikings were eventually just whittled down. They did get some reinforcements from their troops at the bridge, but those were killed as well. It was a bloody battle on both sides. The English uh, uh, were said to have only had five hundred men left at the end of it. And the Norwegians, who had needed 300 ships to cross over on their invasion, only needed 24 to take the survivors back. So that's how many men they lost. Wow. That certainly tell, tells the story right there. Yeah, I hope that wasn't a spoiler alert. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> surprise. surprise Harold, Harold does not live through the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, they want to see all, read all the action. You know. That's right. <laughs> The book is called The Last Viking, The True Story of King Harold Hadrada. Don, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be number one New York Times bestselling author, Tom Clavin, speaking on his new book, Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival. Uh, you know, that was one of the most vivid memories that Joe had of his Buchenwald experience when they were early when they were at the camp, almost immediately after arrival, a German guard who was probably suspecting or observing them looking around the camp, is there any way we can escape, any way we can get out of here? And with kind of, with a smirk, you know, he pointed to the smoke coming out of the crematorium chimney. He said, that's the only way you leave here, as smoke. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, please share the show on social media and follow me on Twitter, at Rob Child. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com.
Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group. I want to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener supporter members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join and it takes just seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link. You'll come to our anchor page, click the support button, complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait. Become a member today and thank you for your support.